0: You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 42 of the show, and we've had a little extended break, I guess you could say. It's been a little over a week since we've been on. Normally we try and do it once a week but we do have a full episode for you was wanting to get uh, the first round of the NHL playoffs finished uh, which did happen uh for the most part I guess there's one series left so we'll get into all that and of course the NBA playoffs have started they're about halfway through their first round and then uh, of course the standings update major league baseball so we'll jump right in we'll go to the PGA tour And last weekend was the PGA Championship, which was the second major championship this year. It was held at the Ocean Course at Kiowa Island Golf Resort in Kiowa Island, South Carolina. It was a par 72. The distance was 7,876 yards, which is just outrageous. Uh, In fact, it was the longest major championship venue in PGA Tour history. And this course, of course, being in South Carolina, it's set alongside the Atlantic Ocean. Hence the name, the Ocean Course. So it actually features the most seaside holes in the Northern Hemisphere. So wind was definitely a factor. And uh, if you recall, last year, it was at Harding Park in San Francisco. Wind was also an issue there as well. Uh, But there were no fans in attendance last year. This year was a different story. The fans were out in full force. Uh, It seemed as though there were no limitations on fans. It was great to watch. In fact, that final pairing of uh, Phil Mickelson and Brooks Kepka on the 18th hole on Sunday, after Mickelson hit his shot to land it on the green, Mickelson and Kepka were absolutely swarmed by fans. Uh, and to the tune of several hundred just in that immediate group, uh, Brooks Kepka said his knee got hit by one of the fans. If you watch the, the video, you can see Somebody tried to run up and hug Phil Mickelson, but Mickelson pushed him off of him. It was just, it was kind of out of control. And since that, the uh, CEO of the PGA of America has come out and apologized for the poor crowd control on the 18th hole when Mickelson and Kepka were swarmed by those fans. So it was a great scene out there. Now the golf itself, I mentioned the wind was a huge issue. Uh, Some huge name players this week, uh, this blast weekend, missed the cut including the two top-ranked golfers in the world, Dustin Johnson and Justin Thomas. Both of them missed the cut, along with world number four, Xander Schauffele, and then some other notables who missed the cut at Kewa Island were Tommy Fleetwood, Mark Leishman, Adam Scott, and Sergio Garcia. So it was evident that the course was giving the best golfers in the world a run for their money. Now, when it was all said and done, Phil Mickelson was your winner at six under par. It was his 45th career victory on tour and his sixth career major championship, which puts him into that elite level status. And Mickelson became the oldest player to ever win a major at 50 years old. He's 50 years old, 11 months. So he's almost 51. And he won the PGA Championship back in 2005, but his 16-year gap between Uh, Winning a major at the same venue, or same major, uh, is the longest in uh, PGA Tour history. Now, this was also, I talked about this on last week's episode, that the last five PGA Championships have been won by Americans. And of course, Phil is an American, so the last six PGA Championships now have been won by an American golfer. And to add to that unbelievable performance by Mickelson, he's just the fourth golfer in PGA Tour history to win that event or win an event in four different decades. So uh, some uh, untouched status there for Mickelson. Now, Phil was your 36-and-54-hole leader, so the pressure was on. There was a lot of talk about whether or not he could uh, maintain the momentum on Sunday, and he actually shot a 1-over-73 on Sunday, but it was good enough to hold off Brooks Kepka and Louis Oosthuizen for a two-shot victory. So there was a two-way tie for second place. Of course, that's Brooks Kepka and Louis Oosthuizen. They were at 4 under par, which was two shots back of Mickelson. Now, Brooks Kepka was 6 under heading into Sunday's final round, just one shot back of Phil. And he was in that final pairing with Phil, which uh Brooks Kepka being in the final pairing of a major on Sunday afternoon is almost about as sure of a bet as you can place the guy is just unbelievable, and this year particularly he's he's really kind of sucked this year. He's battled a knee injury he's missed a bunch of cuts, has not played well at all, and then he comes out on the biggest stage here, one of the toughest courses, and he's right in the mix in that final pairing on sunday and Sunday's round for Kepka was just absolutely atrocious. Uh, he went two over seventy four. Uh, he had multiple chances to catch Phil Mickelson and just could not stay out of the bunkers. So uh, it was not a great finish for Kepka. But either way, it was another top five finish in a major for Brooks. And with that four under par for the tournament, Brooks Kepka is now one hundred and two under par in the majors since two thousand fifteen, which is just. Outrageous. Uh, more on that to come here in a second. But Louis Oosthuizen also finished T2 at 4-under par, and it was a great weekend for Louis Oosthuizen. Uh He was near the top of the board all weekend, 5-under heading into the weekend rounds, and then shot even par on Saturday uh, to stay at 5-under and grab a second-to-last final grouping pairing. And then he closed out with a 1-over 73 on Sunday, but it was still good enough for a T2. Now, there was a four-way tie for fourth, all at two under par, which was two shots back of Kepka and Oosthuizen and four shots back of Mickelson. The first guy, there was a pair of Irishmen at uh, two under par. The first one was Patrick Harrington. He was uh, one under on uh, on Thursday and then rattled off a couple of 73s, one over Friday, one over Saturday, and then he closed with a final round 69. So it's been a while since we've seen her really heard anything from Patrick Harrington but he is a former major champion so this is his way of letting us know that he is still hanging around the other irishman at two under was Shane Lowry he is the 2019 champion golfer of the year and he proved he can still hang in the big tournaments he actually shot a one over 73 on thursday and saturday but he had a one under 71 on friday and then his best round was Sunday, 3-under 69 to get him into that T4 range. The third guy that finished T4 was Harry Higgs. Now, Higgs, he is quickly becoming a fan favorite on the PGA Tour. If you've seen the dude, he is not built like a golfer, but, man, can he play. And he's like sneaky good. Uh, You don't think he's good, but he is actually very decent at golf. Uh, He was only one under heading into the weekend, which was several shots back of the lead, and he kind of slipped up on Saturday shooting a one over 73, but on Sunday he went two under for a 70, which brought him back down to that two under for the tournament. Now the, the last player at T4, two under par, was Paul Casey. Now Paul Casey is just another one of those guys that always seems to be in the top half of the leaderboard in big tournaments. He shot a 1-under 71 in every round except Saturday, where he shot 2-over 73. But you add all that up, and that's still good enough for a 2-under cumulative score and a T4 finish. Now, let's visit Rick's picks to click for the PGA Championship. Now, I will preface this by saying that it was not good whatsoever. Uh, In fact, it was horrible. Uh, in the last few weeks, I've done okay. I think I was three for three at Quail Hollow a few weeks ago, and then two for three somewhere in between. But uh, yeah, this week was not good. First pick I gave you was Jordan Spieth. He'd come in ranked number 26 in the world. He has been one of the hottest golfers in the world uh, over the last few weeks since 2015, I mentioned Brooks Kepka's uh, 102 under par. Uh, well, Spieth entered the weekend at 67 under par in majors since 2015, which was second behind Kepka, and he finished two over. So he's uh, 65 under par, which is second lowest in that time frame behind Brooks Kepka. So Spieth came out, and he just had a disastrous start to the weekend. He went four over in his first two rounds to barely make the cut by a shot. The cut was plus five, which is another storyline, just outrageous high cut line. But Spieth made the cut by a shot. Then he came out Saturday and went four under to get it back down to even and and got him briefly inside the top ten for a little bit. And then he closed out on Sunday with a 2-over, 74. So uh, Spieth is now 65 under par uh, in majors since 2015. And Kepka's 102 under par. So that is just outrageous for both of those guys. Uh, But Spieth finished at 2-over, which was T30 outside that top 25. So I did miss that pick. Now, Rory McIlroy was my second pick to click. He had won couple weeks prior at Quail Hollow for the third time in his career and in his last 10 starts worldwide he'd made the cut in seven of those events and he has a win in four top tens in those seven made cuts so he'd come in playing pretty good golf lately it was not a great week for him either he started at three over 75 and then shot a two over 74 on Saturday and the only thing he could do on Uh, Friday and Sunday were managed a pair of even par rounds of 72. So Rory finished at five over par, T49 missed the cut, or he didn't miss the cut, but he was close to missing the cut. But he did miss my click. Third pick to click I gave you was Xander Schauffele. Came in ranked number four, and in his last 15 starts, he had a win, seven top five finishes, including a T3 at the Masters last month when he probably could have won. And his weekend was worse than the previous two. Shafley uh, actually opened with a 1-over 73, which was not bad given the conditions. He was in the mix and then came out on Friday with just an absolutely atrocious plus 5-77. So he ended up finishing his first two rounds at 6-over par, which missed the cut by a shot. So he did not click for me, obviously, if you missed the cut. Just not a good weekend for one of the top five golfers in the world. Now, this weekend is the Charles Schwab Challenge at Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth, Texas, just right down the road from me. It's a par 70. Distance is much, much shorter than last week at 7,209 yards. And this event, the Charles Schwab Challenge, has been a mainstay on the PGA Tour schedule for the last 76 years. And the only tournament that has been played more years on tour uh, since that is uh, the Masters, which is, of course, at Augusta National every spring. Now, Colonial Country Club is known for having tight fairways and plenty of dog legs. So shot making is going to be at a premium, especially off the tee. And the winner of this tournament gets the very stylish red plaid jacket, which, of course, Daniel Berger got to receive last year after his victory in a playoff hole over Colin Morikawa. But let's check out Rick's picks to click for the Charles Schwab Challenge this weekend. The first one I'll give you is Justin Rose. Comes in ranked number 41 in the world. This is his eighth appearance at Colonial, and he actually won here in 2018. Last year, uh, last time this event was played, um, he was the co leader after the first round when he fired a 63, which is very good, nine under par. Then he ended up finishing T3 that weekend. Last weekend, he finished T8 at Keough Island, a ridiculously challenging golf course. So he's been playing good golf, Uh, he's done well here historically. And his last round at Kiowa Island last Sunday was a 67. That included eight birdies. So I like for Rose to finish inside the top 25 due to his familiarity with this course being his eighth appearance. My second pick to click this week is Abraham Answer. He's ranked number 19 in the world. He's one of the hotter players on tour right now. Uh, He's coming off of three straight top 10 finishes. So in his last three starts, he's been... T8 at Kiowa Island, solo second at Quail Hollow, and fifth at Innisbrook, the Valspar Championship. And he has not finished any worse than T26 in his last nine starts. So, uh, Answer's been playing outstanding golf. This is his fourth career start at the Colonial Country Club, where he finished tied for 14th last year. So, I think Answer is a lock for the top 25. Now, my final pick to click this weekend is Colin Morikawa. He's ranked number five in the world. This is his second trip to Colonial. He lost in a playoff hole last year to Daniel Berger, so he got a solo second-place finish. Now, in Morikawa's last six starts, he's got a win, which is at the World Golf Championships, and three top eight finishes. He leads the tour in greens and regulation, strokes gained approach, and strokes gained T to green so i like for more to finish inside the top 25 but colonial is always a good event it's here locally uh, in the dallas fort worth area so uh, i will definitely be staying tuned into that but we'll move on to the national hockey league and we'll get a update here in the playoffs um There was eight first-round playoff series, and seven of them have wrapped up as of this recording. The only one still going is the Scotia North division between the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs. But we'll take a look here. We'll start off in the Discover Central division, the number one Carolina Hurricanes and the number four Nashville Predators. If you recall, I picked the Hurricanes to win the series in five games. Uh, Games one and two went to Carolina, Games three and four were in Nashville, and they both ended up going into double overtime. In game three, Matt Duchesne was the hero for the Predators as he scored. And then game four, was Luke Coonan of the Predators. Uh, they also uh, He also scored to tie the series at two. Now, game five was back in Carolina, and Captain Jordan Stahl was the hero for that when he deflected the OT game winner just 2 minutes into overtime to give the the Carolina Hurricanes a 3 to 2 series advantage. And then in game 6, Sebastian Ajo for the Hurricanes was the hero. He scored a minute and 6 into overtime, gave Carolina the win 4 to 3 in that game and a 4 to 2 series victory. So there were four straight games that went into overtime to end the series. I predicted Carolina would win in 5. Carolina won the series in six games, so they will advance. So I did get that prediction correct. Now the other series in the Central Division, the number two Florida Panthers and the number three Tampa Bay Lightning. I predicted that Tampa Bay would win the series in seven games. Now, it was because they got Nikita Kucherov and Steven Stamkos back. Well, Nikita Kucherov had nothing but put points on the board in the first three games. Well, in game four, he added four more points to help Tampa roll to a 6-2 victory. And then in game five, the Panthers, they went with rookie goaltender Spencer Knight, who is uh, 20 years old, and he actually let the first shot in that he faced. So it was one nothing Tampa early uh, after their first shot, but then he ended up stopping the final 36 shots in a row to give the Panthers a 4-1 win and get back in the series at three games to two. Now in that sixth game, Spencer Knight got the start for the Panthers again, and then Tampa Bay just proceeded to pepper him early and often. Uh, but Vasilevsky, Andre Vasilevsky at the other end of the of the ice in net, the best goalie in the world. He got a shutout for the Lightning, and that's that's enough said. Uh Vasilevsky outdueled Spencer Knight. The Lightning offense did enough by themselves. So the Lightning ended up winning the series four games to two. So I was correct on that and saying the Lightning would win. Now, Tampa Bay, they scored uh, 24 goals in this series, which is the most goals in a single series in franchise history. So uh, the additions of Stamkos and Kucherov back into the lineup, you could certainly say uh, was a benefit Now, in the Mass Mutual East division, the number one Pittsburgh Penguins took on the number four New York Islanders. We covered the first uh, three games last week's episode. Uh, Well, game four uh, went to the Islanders to even the series at two, and then game five was another beauty, went into double overtime, okay? And then in double overtime, Penguins goalie Tristan Jari uh, came out to play the puck and ended up passing it right to the Islanders forward Josh Bailey in the high slot. Bailey took it in, ripped it, lifted it past uh, Jari to send the Islanders to a 3-2 win in that game and a 3-2 to series advantage. Now game six for the Penguins was do or die, of course, and the game was tied at two after one, but then the Islanders just went on a scoring rampage in that second period, scoring three goals at home in route to a 5-3 win and a 4 to 2 series victory. So I predicted that the Penguins would win in 6 games, but the Islanders were the one who uh, they were the ones who won in 6 games, so I was incorrect on that pick. Now, the other series in the Mass Mutual East Division was the Washington Capitals, the 2 seed and the 3 seed Boston Bruins. We covered the first uh, 4 games, I believe, last week's episode. Uh, Boston was able to finish off Washington in Game 5, winning 3-1. to one. Uh, Boston was the better team by far throughout the entire weekend, or entire week, really, and you could just tell. Uh, Boston ended up winning the series four games to one. I predicted Boston would win the series in seven games, so they actually uh, beat my prediction by two games, but nonetheless, I was still right in predicting Boston would win. Now, in the Honda West division, the top-seeded and President's Trophy-winning Colorado Avalanche, they played the number four seed, St. Louis Blues. We covered the first uh, couple games, I think, in this series. On last week's episode, Nathan McKinnon's been on a roll. He had a two-point game in game four, uh, which is just what Colorado needed to finish off the Blues and complete the sweep. Colorado won game four, five to two, just completely dominated from start to finish, And they are looking every bit of the President's Trophy winning team that they are. And I would not want any part of the Avalanche moving forward. I predicted Colorado would win in six games. They won in four in a clean sweep. So uh, I was correct in picking the Avalanche to win. Now the other series in the Honda West Division is the number two Vegas Golden Knights against the number three Minnesota Wild. This series was absolutely bonkers. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, the Vegas Golden Knights goaltender, a uh, couple games in game one, he made his start, which put him in his 15th straight Stanley Cup playoffs, which was a record. Well, game four, he ended up getting a shutout, Mark andre Fleury did, which was his 16th career playoff shutout, which is third most all-time in playoff history behind Patrick, Patrick Waugh's 23 and Martin Brodeur's 24. But so Minnesota uh, lost game four, which uh, put them down in the series, three to one. Minnesota came back in game five. they out they were outshot, and listen to this: Minnesota was outshot 40 to 14 in game five, but they still found a way to win four to two to bring the series back to three two. So the wild were outshot 40 to 14. But they scored four goals on 14 shots, which was uh, enough to win. Cam Talbot, for the Wild, uh, just played a, just a gutsy performance so far. And that showed in Game 6 because he ended up getting a shutout in Game 6 to force a Game 7. Minnesota won Game 6 3 nothing, so onward we go to Game 7. Well, in their franchise history, the Wild were 3-0 and all-time in Game 7 in the playoffs. Uh, and then, of course, you have the Golden Knights who had lost two games in a row and were ready to pounce. Well, something had to give. And in Game 7, it was just an absolute demolition by the Golden Knights. Matthias Janmark, former Dallas star, had a hat trick for the Knights, and uh, Vegas won 6-2 to two in Game 7 to capture the series in seven games. Now, I actually predicted Vegas would win in seven games, And that was uh, totally correct, because they did win in seven games. So we'll move over to the Scotia North Division. The first series, number one Toronto Maple Leafs against the number four Montreal Canadiens. Now, we covered the first uh, couple games in last week's episode, but uh, Toronto came back in game two, they had a 5-1 to one win to even the series at one game. Of course, remember Montreal won game one when John Tavares got knocked out of the game. Knocked out literally and figuratively. Um, Austin Matthews had three points in game two. So the series was even. Game three was a good one. Uh, all the scoring was in the second period. Toronto ended up hanging on for a 2-1 win and a 2-1 series lead. Game four, the Leafs came out 4 nothing victory for the Leafs, uh, former Montreal Canadian Alex Galchenyuk. He had three points uh, to help Toronto win 3-1 there in game four. And If you recall, Montreal actually drafted Alex Galchenyuk with the third overall pick in the 2012 NHL draft. So uh, pretty interesting there for Galchenyuk. Now speaking of Galchenyuk, in game five, he went from the hero of game four to the GOAT, of Game 5. Uh, Montreal had a 3-0 lead, gave up three unanswered goals to get Toronto back in the game. Jake Muzzin had two of them. And then in overtime, Leafs forward Alex Galchenyuk, he passed the puck right to Nick Suzuki of the Canadians, who took Cole Caulfield, the other fabulous young player on Montreal, on a 2-0 on breakaway and, of course, they buried the puck past Jake, uh, Jack Campbell to give the Habs a 4-3 to win and make the series 3-2. to Now, Game 6, overtime. And overtime games are always fun. And in overtime, Montreal forward Jasperi Kotkaniemi found the back of the net with less than five minutes to go in overtime to even the series at three games apiece. So this is the only series that is not finished in the first round. I predicted Toronto would win the series in five games. The games are incorrect because we're going to a game seven on Monday. But I believe Toronto being at home, I think they're going to win. Uh, they've lost two games in a row. Uh, I think Toronto is going to win. But the other series in the Scotia North Division is the number two Edmonton Oilers, and number three Winnipeg Jets. Now, I predicted that Edmonton would win the series in five games, and that did not happen. In fact, Winnipeg won the first two games that we covered on last week's episode. Well, Game 3 went into overtime, and uh, the Jets would win in overtime. Connor Alebuck, uh stopped 44 of 48 shots for the Jets to help give them a 3-0 series advantage. And in Game 4, uh, it was just absolutely nuts. Edmonton actually had a 3-2 lead in the third period uh, with just over six minutes left, but then Mark Shifley of the Jets scored his second goal of the game to tie it at three. The game would go into triple overtime before Jets forward Kyle Connor ripped a wrist shot past Oilers goalie Mike Smith to win the game and complete the sweep for the Jets. So I was completely incorrect on that series. So out of the eight in to recap out of the eight series in the first round that have uh, that were started seven of them are complete and in those seven series I'm five and two in my predictions I've gotten five right two incorrect and then game seven between Montreal and Toronto is on Monday and I picked Toronto to win that so uh, I'm either going to be six and two or five and three to finish out the first round but the second round has already started, and we'll take a look at those series, and I'll make you a prediction for those while we're at it. Uh, the Boston Bruins, the Mass Mutual East Division, the Boston Bruins take on the New York Islanders. Uh, Boston really took care of business against the Capitals. Uh, the Islanders looked really solid against the Penguins. The Islanders' trade deadline acquisition of Kyle Palmieri has been huge, but so has the deadline acquisition of Taylor Hall for Boston. Uh, I think Boston very well could go to the Stanley Cup Finals. So I am taking the Boston Bruins to beat the New York Islanders in six games. So we'll see how that goes there. Now in the Discover Central division, the Carolina Hurricanes are taking on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now I love Carolina. I like what they're doing uh, their fan base, they have full capacity uh, in their arena, and it is loud, and they are nuts. And the uh, Sebastian Ajo line has proven, you know, Jordan Stahl, those guys have shown up. Um, Nadelkovic and Nett has been rock solid, but you're facing the defending Stanley Cup champions who are uh, in full force. Uh, they have Stamkos, they have Kucherov. Kucherov had, I think, nine or ten points in the first round. Uh, Just absolutely unbelievable. Stamkos put a couple goals in net, and then they have the best goalie in the entire world in Andre Vasilevsky. So uh, while Carolina is the higher seed, I am taking the Tampa Bay Lightning to win that series in six games. Now in the Honda West division, this series, it's the top-seeded Colorado Avalanche, the President's Trophy-winning Avalanche, against the number-two seed Vegas Golden Knights. Not only were these two teams the top two teams in the Honda West division, these two teams were the top two teams in the entire National Hockey League during the regular season. So it's a shame that we get this series in the second round instead of being in the Stanley Cup Finals. But nonetheless, here we are. Both teams are fast. Uh, Colorado probably has uh, more uh, better puck control than the, the Vegas Golden Knights. Vegas likes to shoot. Early and often, they will put shots on the board, but Colorado likes to control the puck. They have a good puck-moving defenseman in Kale McCarr, and of course, some of the fastest forwards in the league. Uh, Nathan McKinnon might be the very fastest forward in the league. I think this series is going seven games. I think we're getting our money's worth in this, and uh, I like the Avalanche to win in seven games. Now, the final series in the second round would be the Scotia North Division, It's the Winnipeg Jets versus either the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Montreal Canadiens. Now, I will do this uh, preface pick here. I'm going to say, if Toronto beats Montreal in Game 7 on Monday, I like the Toronto Maple Leafs to beat the Winnipeg Jets in 7 games. And if Montreal ends up beating Toronto... I like for the Winnipeg Jets to win against Montreal in six games. So it's kind of a uh, scenario situation. If Toronto beats Montreal in game seven, and it's Toronto versus Winnipeg, give me Toronto in seven games. But if Montreal beats Toronto in game seven, and we have a Winnipeg-Montreal series, give me the Jets to win in six games. So, uh... Awesome that the second round's already started. Uh, they're already a game or two into the second round as as of this recording, so uh, Stanley Cup playoffs are, are off and running. The quest for Lord Stanley is in full force, and we continue to watch and uh, get pumped up for the Stanley Cup playoffs. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, do a playoff update here in the NBA. As of this recording on Sunday afternoon, there's been only one series that's finished in the first round of the NBA playoffs most series are uh, between 3 and 4 games played so far. But we'll start off here in the Eastern Conference. The top-seeded Philadelphia 76ers took on the number 8 seed Washington Wizards and uh just it's it's not been good for the Wizards. Uh, I liked for the 76ers to win the series, but I thought Philly would make it or I thought um Washington would make it interesting. That has not been the case. Philadelphia has just—they're—they've taken care of business. Uh, they're big dogs. Joe LMB, the MVP finalist, he's just been scoring on an outrageous pace. He's been double double left and right, and they've gotten secondary scoring from Tobias Harris. Ben Simmons has gotten. Ben Simmons had a fifteen assist, fifteen rebound, double double in game one, and then. Uh, on the flip side, Washington's Bradley Beal, he's trying to do everything he can to help keep the Wizards in the series. He scored 33 points in each of the first two games, just not been good enough for the Wizards. And then in game three, Philadelphia just absolutely blew out Washington, 132-103. to So as it sits at this moment, the 76ers are up three games to nothing on the Wizards. Now, the number two seed in the East is the Brooklyn Nets. They've taken on the number seven seed, Boston Celtics. I predicted that Brooklyn would win the series in six games, and as it sits now, uh, Brooklyn currently leads the series two games to one. Now, in game one, the big three between Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving, they combined for 82 points. Durant had 32, Kyrie 29, Harden 21, and that was really all that they needed Uh, They won by 11 points. Uh, Celtics got 22 points from Jason Tatum in Game 1. Now, Game 2 was just another dominating performance by Brooklyn. Jason Tatum for the Celtics uh, made an early exit with uh, some kind of injury that opened the door for Brooklyn to just kind of take over. Now, the Big 3 only combined for 61 points, so 21 points fewer than they had before. But that was still plenty enough. And then in Game 3, it was the Jason Tatum show for Boston. Uh, He had 50 points, Jason Tatum did, which is what he did in the uh, play-in game as well. The first play-in game that Boston had, he scored 50. So Tatum dropped 50, and that was enough to give the Celtics a Game 3 victory, even though James Harden had 41, Kevin Durant had 39. So... Uh, they had 80 points between those two guys, and Kyrie Irving chipped in with 16. So it was the most combined points for the big three there so far in game three. But uh, Jason Tatum scoring 50 is, is going to be hard to defend. So the Nets lead that series two games to one. Number three seed in the East, the Milwaukee Bucks take on the number six seed Miami Heat. I predicted Milwaukee would win in six games, and this is actually the only series in the entire NBA at this moment that has been finished. The Bucks ended up sweeping the Miami Heat four games to none. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo picking up right where he left off. 31 points in game two. Uh, he's actually set a record, Giannis did, tied his own record, uh, for so that was set last year for the fewest minutes played in order to reach thirty points and ten rebounds and five assists. So, uh, Giannis was feeling it. He had seventeen points, seventeen boards in Game Three, and then Game Four was pretty much much the same as as everything else. Chris Middleton got in on the scoring, and uh, the Bucks ended up sweeping the Heat in four games. So I did get that series prediction correct with the Bucks winning. Now, in the East as well, the number four seed New York Knicks took on the number five seed Atlanta Hawks. I predicted the Knicks would win in seven games, and the first two games went back and forth. Uh, Trey Young had a last-second shot in game one, caused some fans to uh, talk some trash. We had a couple of fan interactions. The first one, Trey Young... Uh, got spit on uh, after Game 2 when the Knicks ended up winning Game 2 to even the series. Trey Young got spit on uh, after dropping 30 points. And then we'll back it up to the uh, Philly and Washington series. There was a fan that uh, dumped a whole bag of popcorn on Russell Westbrook of the Wizards uh, after uh, it was either Game 1 or 2. And uh, so that caused some uproar uh, in the NBA. But... Uh, Nonetheless, as it sits right now in the Knicks and Hawks series, Game 3, I'm sorry, yeah, Game 3, the, the Hawks came back home and they ended up winning by 11 points. And then uh, they also won Game 4 on Sunday afternoon. So the Atlanta Hawks lead that series three games to one over the Knicks. So my Knicks pick is not looking good. Uh, Julius Randle did have a double-double. Uh, in Game One, he needs to step it up. He's getting outplayed by Trey Young. But in the Western Conference, uh, the top-seeded Utah Jazz took on the number eight-seed Memphis Grizzlies. Now, <clears throat> the first game was uh, pretty much a surprise to everybody. Donovan Mitchell for the Utah Jazz, All-Star point guard, he was a late scratch due to an injury, and uh, he was definitely missed because the Grizzlies would go on to win one twelve to one o nine. Dylan Brooks, he's been the story of the playoffs so far for the Grizzlies. He had 31 points in Game 1. John ja Morant, we know about him. He had 26 in Game 1. Now, Utah did not like how Game 1 went, and they got Donovan Mitchell back, and they ended up shooting the lights out in Game 2. They put up 141 points. Okay, The Grizzlies got 47 points from John ja Morant, but... Utah's big three of Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, and Mike Conley, they all put up at least 20 points, and they led the Jazz to a series-tying victory. In Game 3, it was much the same as Game 2. The Jazz came out ready to roll. So as that series currently sits, uh, the Jazz are up two games to one. Now, I predicted that Utah would win in six games, so uh, we're on pace for that. Now, the number two seed, Phoenix Suns, are taking on the number seven seed Los Angeles Lakers. I predicted the Lakers would win in six games. Lakers are actually the the odds-on favorite in Vegas to win the series, first seven seed to be a favorite in the last 30 years. Well, Phoenix came out in game one. They didn't want to hear about all that noise. Uh, They ended up just coming out swinging. Devin Booker dropped 34 points. DeAndre Ayton had 21 points, 16 boards, and Phoenix actually won game one. LeBron and Anthony Davis only combined for 31 points for the Lakers in that loss which is not going to cut it. Game two was much better for the Lakers. LeBron hit a late three to give the Lakers the lead and then he let the Suns fans hear it so there was kind of some drama at the end of the game towards the end of the game but the Lakers even the series at one and then Uh, So after only combining for 31 points in Game 1, LeBron James and Anthony Davis in Game 2, they just went to work. Uh, Davis had 34 points, 10 rebounds. LeBron had 23 points. Dennis Schroeder chipped in in a big way with 24 huge points off the bench for the Lakers. And then meanwhile on the Phoenix side, Devin Booker scored another 31 points. DeAndre Ayton had another double-double with 22 points, 10 boards. So Game 3, Game 3, the Lakers ended up cruising to victory, a 14-point win there. LeBron had 21, and Anthony Davis was just an absolute monster again. 34 points, 11 rebounds. With that performance, Anthony Davis became just the fifth Los Angeles Lakers player to record consecutive 30-point, 10-rebound playoff games, and he joined Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Elgin Baylor, Kobe Bryant, and Shaquille O'Neal uh, and players to achieve that feat for the Lakers. So, and as it sits now, uh, as of this recording, the uh, Suns and the Lakers are currently playing right now, game four on Sunday afternoon. Uh, as I look at it now, about eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter, eight and a half minutes, the Suns are up 87-69. So it appears that the Suns are going to win game four even the series, but uh, the other series in the West, number three, Denver Nuggets, taking on the number six, Portland Trailblazers. I predicted uh, against the grain, I guess you could say, that Portland would win the series in seven games over the higher-seeded Denver Nuggets. And as it sits now, the series is tied at two games apiece. Okay, Portland came out swinging in game one. Dame Lillard had 34 points. CJ McCollum had 21. Blazers won by 14. But in game two, that MVP finalist for the, the Nuggets, Nikola Jokic, he had 38 points, eight rebounds, gave the, the Nuggets a win. Game three was a close, good game. Much the same, honestly. Dame Lillard put up 37 for the Blazers, uh, but Nikola Jokic had 36 points, 11 boards to make the Nuggets win 120-115. to 115. Game 4 went back and forth, but Portland ended up with a 20-point victory in Game 4. So that series is tied at 2. I predicted Portland in 7, and it's looking like it's heading in that direction. But that is some high-level basketball being played in that series. Now the final first-round series... Uh, The number four, Los Angeles Clippers. Number five, Dallas Mavericks. I predicted the Clippers would win in six games, even though the Mavericks are my hometown team and my favorite team in the NBA. And uh, what did they do? Well, they came out in game one. Luka Doncic had a triple-double, 31 points, 11 rebounds, 10 assists. It was his third career playoff triple-double in just his seventh playoff game. Just outrageous. That kid is uh, one of the top three or four players in the entire league. So the Mavs got out to a 1-0 lead in the series. In Game 2, the Mavs just came out dominating. Uh, I talked about last week's episode, secondary scoring for the Mavericks, um, other than Luka. He needs Porzingis, Tim Hardaway Jr. to step up, and that's exactly what happened in Game 2. Luka did his thing with 39 points. Kristaps Porzingis had 20 And then Tim Hardaway Jr. had 28 points. He was hitting pretty much every three that he threw up. Uh, But on the other side, Kawhi Leonard dropped 41 points for the Clippers in a losing effort. So the Mavs ended up winning both of the first two games of this series in Los Angeles. So then you move to game three. And uh, it was a must win for the Clippers, really. Um, And they did just that. Uh, Luka Doncic for the Mavs had 44 points in game three but it was not enough to uh, beat the Clippers. The Clippers ended up winning game three to bring the series to two games to one. Uh, game four in that series is tonight here in Dallas. And uh, if the Mavericks win, they'll be going back to L.A. with a two-to-one series or a three-to-one series lead. But uh, the NBA playoffs are definitely uh, been exciting. There's a uh, Like I said, on uh, last week's episode, there seems to be a, a larger number of quantity teams in the NBA, which is making these playoffs uh, more competitive probably than previous years. So uh, we'll get you a preview of the second round series uh, on next week's episode. But we'll move on to Major League Baseball. We'll do a quick standings update here in the MLB. Um, we're about 55 ish, between 50 and 55 games or so played for every team. So coming up on a third of the way through the season here but uh, we'll start off in the National League the National League East the New York Mets are 25 and 20 they've won four in a row three and a half game lead on the Atlanta Braves who are 24 and 26 Philadelphia Phillies 25 and 28 Miami Marlins 24 and 28. And the Washington Nationals, 21-28. and 28. They are six games back of the Mets. They've lost four in a row. And uh, with that pitching staff and that lineup, I, I think that's a huge disappointment for the Nationals. In the NL Central, St. Louis Cardinals are still up top at 30-22. and 22. They've won four in a row. Second place, the Chicago Cubs, 29-22, and 22, just a half game back. They are eight. And two in their last ten games, they've won six in a row, and the Milwaukee Brewers are also hot right now, winning seven out of their last ten to go to twenty eight twenty five. They've won four in a row. Cincinnati Reds are twenty two and twenty eight, and the Pittsburgh Pirates are twenty and thirty two. Now in the National League West, the San Diego Padres have climbed up to the top spot at thirty four and twenty. They've won seven out of their last ten. They actually had a point in this last week and a half where they had won nine games in a row before losing. So they are up top. One game in front of the San Francisco Giants, who are 32-20. The Los Angeles Dodgers are two games back of the Padres, one game back of the Giants at 31-21. They've lost two in a row, but they've won seven out of their last ten. The Colorado Rockies have climbed out from the basement of the NL West. They are 20-34, and 34, and the Arizona Diamondbacks are now in the cellar of the NL West. They are 18-35. and 35. They've lost 13 games in a row, which is absolutely atrocious. They have officially taken over. Uh, well, they're the worst team in the National League, and they're only one game better than the Baltimore Orioles for worst team in the league. Speaking of those Orioles, they reside in the American League East. And in that NL East, the Tampa Bay Rays are atop the division at 34-20. They had gone on a stretch this past week and a half, winning 12 games in a row before losing. They're currently on a four-game winning streak, but they're uh, 9-1 in their last 10. They lead the Boston Red Sox by a game Boston is thirty-two and twenty. They've uh, won three in a row as well. The New York Yankees, twenty-nine and twenty-four. They just got swept this weekend by the Detroit Tigers, uh, so they are four and a half games back of Tampa. The Toronto Blue Jays are twenty-seven and twenty-four. They've won a couple in a row, and then uh, competing with those Diamondbacks for worst team in the league is the Baltimore Orioles. They are seventeen and thirty-six. They have also lost thirteen games in a row to match Arizona. Just absolutely atrocious. Uh, their season is basically over. No, I mean no chance that they come anywhere near the playoffs. Now in the American League Central, the Chicago White Stock oh, White Sox they're still hanging on to that top spot at thirty two and twenty. They've won four in a row. Uh, they've scored uh, an insane amount of runs. I think they're. Fourth in the American League in runs. They are proving that their offense is no joke. The Cleveland Indians are four games back of the White Sox at 27-23. The Kansas City Royals are 25-26. Detroit Tigers, fresh off that sweep of the Yankees, 22-31. They've won three in a row, but they're still 10.5 games back of the White Sox. And then holding up the rear in the AL Centrals, the Minnesota Twins. 21-31, Twenty-one and thirty-one. They have won seven out of their last ten, but there are still eleven games back of the White Sox in that division. Now, in the American League West, the Oakland A's thirty-one and twenty-three. Uh, they are five hundred in their last ten games, uh, but they still hold a two-game lead over the Houston Astros, who are twenty-eight and twenty-four. Seattle Mariners, 26 and 27. They're four and a half games back of the A's. And then the Los Angeles Angels. They took uh, the series victory over the Texas Rangers this week to pass the Rangers, move up from that last place spot. The Angels are 23 and 29. And then the Texas Rangers holding up the rear. They're 22 and 32, nine games back of the A's. They've lost five in a row and uh, they're down 3 nothing right now on a Sunday, so it's likely that they're going to drop six games in a row and uh, move even further back, but uh, I'll still cheer the Rangers on. So baseball, we're still doing good uh, coming up on a third of the way through the season. I think by next week's episode, we'll probably officially be a third of the way through the season, but uh, the division races are starting to kind of uh, gain some traction here, and we kind of know who's Who's looking to be in contention and who's not? But uh, we'll stay tuned on that for next week's episode as well. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that's where we do some quick hit topics from the various sports. And uh, this past week, uh, we'll start off in the National Football League. This past week, there's been some drama with the Atlanta Falcons and their Pro Bowl wide receiver Julio Jones. Still has a couple years left on his contract. He uh, was quoted as saying he's out of here, uh, quote, I'm out of there, when he was called on live TV from Shannon Sharp on Fox Sports, which has also caused a huge bit of drama because uh, Julio Jones has come out and said he didn't realize he was, he was on live TV when they called him. But either way, it appears as though Julio Jones has played his last game as an Atlanta Falcon. Now, the rumors have been going around saying that uh, – Julio is either going to be a New England Patriot or a Tennessee Titan, but there's been multiple teams that have called the Falcons and asked for uh, Julio in a trade. Now, Atlanta's starting asking price is a first-round pick. Reportedly, they've gotten at least one team to offer a first-round pick. Now, it has not been mentioned who that was, but um, I didn't think that they would get a first-round pick considering Julio Jones' age and the remaining money on his contract. And he's obviously one of the great wide receivers in this game. He's a future Hall of Famer. And in his first 10 seasons in the league, he ranks second in receiving yards with 12,896, which is only uh, behind Jerry Rice's 13,275. So Julio Jones is an elite talent. Uh, I I think he's maybe a step behind of where he was five or six years ago, but uh, you still would rather have Julio Jones. So uh, I would assume this before next week's episode, there's a good chance we'll know where Julio Jones is playing next year. But the other announcement, uh, a couple other announcements out of the NFL this past week. The first one was that the NFL made a couple of big announcements regarding this season. The first one is that teams are going to be permitted to host fans at training camps this summer, uh, subject, of course, to local and state guidelines uh, from the health departments. But uh, as you recall, in 2020, all training camps were closed. So the, the fact that they get to get fans back out there in training camps will help the players get ready even more so than they than they will be this year. And the second thing that the NFL announced is that all uh, But two teams, so 30 out of the 32 teams in the league have now received approval from state and local governments to open their stadiums at full capacity when the games resume this fall, which is excellent news. The only two teams in the league who have not received clearance for full capacity at the moment are the Indianapolis Colts and the Denver Broncos. But the NFL has come out and said that they, quote, feel good about the path end quote, for those two teams to be at full capacity. So it appears as though the Colts and Broncos are dragging their feet, but the NFL thinks that uh, all 32 stadiums will be at full capacity this fall, which, again, I've mentioned this a thousand times over the last several months, are return to normalcy. That is huge, and sports is a big part of that, and full stadiums for NFL games this fall is going to be absolutely unbelievable to see, and I'm looking forward to it. Now, a side note in the NFL, league-wide season ticket sales, uh, the renewal rate has been about 90% so far this offseason. Of course, they didn't have season tickets last year because nobody was allowed in the venues, but ticket prices are on average so far 83% higher uh, than the same time period back in 2019 when uh, pre-pandemic, before we knew this was all going down. Then, of course, no fans allowed in the stadiums last year at all. So now ticket prices are 83% higher than they were just two years ago. Uh, Pretty insane to think about, but all of the venues will still fill up with fans. But the last piece of NFL news deals with a retirement, and that was kicker Adam Vinatieri. He announced his retirement from the NFL after 24 seasons in the league. Vinatieri is the NFL's all-time leading scorer with 2,673 points, and he also made a record 599 field goals in that 24 years. And just to put it in perspective, uh, Adam Vinatieri's career of things that took place when Adam Vinatieri made his NFL debut September 1st of 1996. So... On that date, September 1st, 96, here are the events that uh, were going on. The Dallas Cowboys were Super Bowl champions at the time. Brett Favre, the Green Bay Packers, had just won his first NFL MVP award. Tom Brady was a freshman at the University of Michigan. And the Ravens had just began playing games in Baltimore. And if you take that date and look at the Uh, NFL players that were on week 17 rosters this past season. uh, Out of the total number of players on NFL rosters the last week of this season, 482 players were not even born when Adam Vinatieri made his debut September 1st of 96. So he has been in the league a hot minute, but uh, he's obviously a, a Hall of Fame kicker uh probably first ballot hall of fame if I had to guess, but uh congrats to him on a heck of a career. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League. One piece of important information. Uh Wayne Gretzky, Hall of Fame player, he has served the last few years as the vice chairman of the Edmonton Oilers. Uh Gretzky did took over that position in 2016, Vice Chairman, and he this past week he stepped down from that position uh, that announcement was made immediately after the Oilers got swept out of the first round by the Winnipeg Jets. Now, in his time as a vice chairman with the Oilers, Gretzky has been a mentor for Connor McDavid, who of course is the best player in the league. And after the announcement was made that he's stepping down from the Oilers' vice chair position, it was announced that Gretzky's going to join TNT as a hockey analyst next season. Now, personally, I wasn't even aware that TNT covered hockey outside of the playoffs, but uh, he will join TNT as a hockey analyst. But we'll zip over real quick to Major League Baseball. And Major League Baseball umpire Joe West this past week, he umpired his 5,376th career game, which is the most games umpired in MLB history. So if you take a uh, 162-game season and divide that by his, uh, the total, his 5,376 games, that gives you the equivalent of 33, a little over 33 full seasons in Major League Baseball. Uh, And I assume umpires probably uh, ump every day of the week or kind of like on that baseball schedule. They just rotate uh, positions in the field each series or each game, each series. But Joe West has umpired three All-Star games, six World Series, 23 post-seasons. So uh, he's also given out a record-setting 194 ejections from the game. So he's known as a guy that gives you the quick boot if you start arguing, but uh, he's one of the best in the game. Obviously, he's been umping for uh, over 33 years. Uh, the dude knows a little something about baseball. But the other noteworthy topic in Major League Baseball this past week involved Atlanta Braves outfielder Marcel Ozuna. He actually went to the 10-day disabled list, or injured list, uh, spraining a couple of fingers, sliding into second base in a game this past week. But uh, this past Saturday, he was actually arrested and charged with felony family violence assault after a domestic violence incident. Now, the MLB is expected to launch an investigation into this incident and uh, it was brought up that a couple of months ago, Marcelo Osuna uh, was actually a victim of family violence, where his wife uh, hit him with some kind of object, causing him some minor facial injury, in which she got arrested. Uh, but now on a Saturday was Osuna's turn to go to jail. Uh, that's a huge blow. To the Braves. Uh, he is in the first year of a four year, $64 million contract that he signed this past offseason with the Braves. So um, he is a huge piece of that Braves offense, and uh, certainly he'll be subject to a personal conduct suspension, I would believe, uh, from the MLB, regardless of whether or not the charge gets dropped. But uh, that is certainly something to keep an eye on. Now, the final piece of uh, Around the Island news goes over in the PGA Tour. And this past week, the PGA Tour announced that uh, the golfing event known as The Match is returning this year. Uh, If you recall, last year it was the Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson match uh, that drew a ton of attention and a ton of revenue. Well, this year's match is going to feature PGA Championship winner Phil Mickelson teaming up with seven-time Super Bowl-winning quarterback Tom Brady. They will be playing uh, a uh, scramble event uh, against the 2020 U.S. Open winner of Bryson DeChambeau and reigning NFL MVP Aaron Rodgers. So this event is going to take place on July 6th of 2021 here, and it's going to be held at Moonlight Basin, which is in Big Sky, Montana. Now, kind of a side street on Bryson DeChambeau real quick. This past week there's been a ton of uh, videos and comments and tweets uh, in the news regarding Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka. Now, after the PGA Championship, Brooks Kepka was getting interviewed. I think it was after the first or second round. Kepka was getting interviewed and Bryson DeChambeau walks by Kepka in the background and says something, and Kepka has to stop his interview, and he cusses, and was like, I lost my train of thought. You've probably seen that video if you follow golf, but uh, Kepka and DeChambeau hate each other. They've been throwing jabs back and forth all week, and uh, it's pretty funny because I personally like both of those golfers. Uh, They're both great uh, American golfers. Kepka's obviously a major champion, a uh, four-time major champion. DeChambeau has one major, uh, but he's the longest driver on tour. And uh, it's, it's funny to see him throw jabs back and forth. Bryson talking about living rent-free in Kepka's head. And uh, they're just going back and forth, good old-fashioned fun. And the only thing that seems fitting for this, if they're not going to duke it out in a fist fight, is to pair them up uh, in, a, in the first two groups uh, of the U.S. Open. Uh, coming up I think that would be uh, all but uh, fair and fitting and so I think the USGA needs to make that happen but uh, that is going to wrap up the 42nd episode of the Sports Island podcast I hope you all enjoyed it it was a busy episode um, but as we move further along in these playoffs uh, we'll have less series to talk about so but next week we'll get you caught up on the second round of the NHL playoffs We'll preview the second round of the NBA playoffs and get you an update there as well. And then, of course, uh, baseball has been rocking and rolling, so we'll do an update next week on that as well. But until then, uh, stay safe, have a happy Memorial Day, uh, be well, and we'll talk to you on Sports Island next week.